0: If you would, open your Bibles, please, to Ezra, chapter 7. Okay. We've been studying the books of Ezra and Haggai, a historical book and a prophetic book, which are tied to each other by the events that they deal with. The book of Ezra sets the stage. It, it tells us the events that are described. The nation of Judah, that is the two tribes to the south, the Southern Kingdom, Benjamin and Judah, were taken into exile by the Babylonians. Babylonians were then conquered by the Persians, and the Persian king who accomplished this, a man named Cyrus, who a mere twenty years before had been a vassal king himself, uh, makes a proclamation. And the Book of Ezra opens with these words: "In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, he had just become king over the whole Persian Empire." In order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm and to put it in writing. One of the important lessons that I hope we have learned is that the events of human history do not happen apart from God's purposes. I think living when and where we do, we tend to think only in terms of cause and effect, human cause and effect, that somebody does this and this is the result even when we pray to God for something. I think the picture in our mind is almost as though God is not really involved in the day-to-day events of our lives, but when something really serious comes up, then we pray and we want him somehow to jump into the picture and fix things. We see this as exceptional and not the norm, particularly in the arena of politics, again, living when and where we do. Here we have a political leader who makes a decision regarding God's people, which we are told is a result of the Lord moving his heart. I would suggest to you that God is far more involved in the day-to-day events of every human being's life than we can imagine. You may remember, and I hope that you do, that the proclamation did not have to do with a return back to Jerusalem, but with the rebuilding of the temple. The project gives off to a good start, a strong start, one might say, Uh, Cyrus makes a proclamation. He returns all the things that were stolen by Nebuchadnezzar uh, from the temple. Those who do not go back also contribute. Those who do go back contribute as well. Some 40,000 Jews go back to rebuild the temple. The foundation of the temple is laid. The sacrificial system has been put back in place. But then there is opposition. This is what we see through the rest of Ezra and then the book of Nehemiah, which the Lord willing we will see. We'll study after this. The work on the temple was halted by King Artaxerxes. It starts up again under Darius. But it's also as a result of four sermons from Haggai, which we have studied. Four and a half years after the rebuilding had begun again, the temple is finally finished. And we read in chapter 6, near the end, verse 15, the temple was completed on the third day of the month, Adar, In the sixth year of the reign of King Darius, then the people of Israel, the priests, the Levites, and the rest of the exiles celebrated the dedication of the house of God with joy. This is a long project, a a four-and-a-half-year project. that actually began 16 years before, but was put on hold because of Artaxerxes. It was begun in hard times. It continued in the face of small things. This is not going to be like Solomon's temple. This is going to be a shadow of it. But they continue, even though there is opposition. And 70 years after that magnificent temple was destroyed, a second temple is completed and is dedicated. And then at the end of chapter 6, we read of a joyful Passover. If you look at verse 19, on the 14th day of the first month, the exiles celebrated the Passover. The priests and Levites had purified themselves and were all ceremonially clean. The Levites slaughtered the Passover lamb for all the exiles, for their brothers, the priests, and for themselves. So the Israelites who had returned from exile ate it, together with all who had separated themselves from the unclean practices of their Gentile neighbors in order to seek the Lord, the God of Israel. For seven days they celebrated with joy the feast of unleavened bread because the Lord had filled them with joy by changing the attitude of the king of Assyria so that he assisted them in the work in the house of God, the God of Israel. As I mentioned last, the last time I spoke, um, which just a side note, Dave spoke last week and we're very grateful for him speaking and for the things that he had to say to us. So thank you very much, Dave, for doing that. This is where the text returns to Hebrew at a certain point where the letters that are being sent it all goes into Aramaic but now it comes back to Hebrew and this is the official language of the Jewish people And not only is it the Passover where they began as a nation and they're taken out of Egypt uh, by a mighty hand of the Lord Um, Passover remembers that but now the language of Hebrew is that which is used now, at the end of chapter 6, we come to the end of the first part of the book of Ezra. Ezra is actually two different parts. The first is the first return, chapters 1 through 6. And the second part deals with the second return, verses seven through, or chapters 7 through 10. And this second return includes Ezra, for whom the book is named. Look, if you would, at chapter 7. After these things, during the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, Ezra, son of Zariah, the son of Azariah, the son of Hilkiah, the son of Shalom, the son of Zadok, the son of Ahitub, the son of Amariah, the son of Azariah, the son of Miraioth, the son of Zariah, the son of Uzi, the son of Buki, the son of Abishua the son of Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the chief priest. This Ezra came up from Babylon. He was a teacher well-versed in the law of Moses, which the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. The king had granted him everything he asked, for the hand of the Lord his God was on him. Some of the Israelites, including priests, Levites, singers, gatekeepers, and temple servants, also came up to Jerusalem in the seventh year of King Artaxerxes. Ezra arrived in Jerusalem in the 5th month of the 7th year of the king. He had begun his journey from Babylon on the 1st day of the 1st month, and he arrived in Jerusalem on the 1st day of the 5th month by the gracious hand of his God, for the gracious hand of his God was on him. For Ezra had devoted himself to the study and observance of the law of the Lord and to teaching his decrees and laws in Israel. What I find fascinating about this passage, and there are a number of things, but the first thing is what we find at the beginning of verse number one. After these things. I think that the reader would assume that the author means after the events of the previous chapter. Dedication of the temple, uh, the Passover is observed with great joy. By the way, it reminds me very much of the end of the Gospel of Luke. uh, that This part of the book ends with great joy. The people are filled with joy. So after these things, this happens. And if we're not careful, we would think... Well, like the next day, or maybe the next week, or the next month, maybe the next year. Um, The reality is, between the end of chapter 6 and the beginning of chapter 7, 58 years. There are 58 years that have taken place, have transpired since then. I think that we have a tendency to compress the past. It makes it easier for us to deal with it. Um, But when we do that with scripture, we really fail to appreciate what happens and we do not get the benefits of the lessons that we could learn as a result. Darius was king when the work on the temple resumed. It was completed in the sixth year of his reign. Darius was a capable leader. He was a good leader. Uh, He extended the empire from India, from the Indus River uh, all the way to the Aegean Sea. He was a strong administrator and reorganized the empire. He was known for building projects uh, including something that connected the Nile River with the Red Sea and many roads, he was, he was succeeded by Xerxes, his son, who appears in the Old Testament as Ahasuerus, at least in the King James Version. He is the guy that married Esther. Remember Esther, the book of Esther? So we go from Darius to Xerxes, Well, Xerxes, by the way, we are told he ruled over 127 provinces from India to Kush. Xerxes was assassinated and he was succeeded to the throne by his younger son, the older son having been killed by the younger son. Um, It is during this reign of the son of Xerxes that the Persian Empire begins to show signs of weakness. And in Judah and Jerusalem, excitement over the temple has begun to wane. It's been 58 years after all. Little, if anything, has been done to rebuild the city, the walls of Jerusalem. It seems that the people were content to have their farms, their homes, and just kick back. They go to the temple, but it has become mundane. It's become very ritualized. And as we will see, the Lord willing, next week, they had begun to intermarry with unbelieving Gentiles, which God had forbidden. It is into this situation that we find this Ezra, as the writer puts it. God raises up Ezra to lead a second group of exiles to Jerusalem. Who is this Ezra? Well, in verse number 6, we are told he came up from Babylon. He was a teacher well-versed in the law of Moses, which the Lord, the God of Israel, had given him. But even before we get to that in verse number 6, you may have noticed, as I stumble over the names in verses 1 through 5, we are given a, a sort of a shorter form of his genealogy, which traces all the way back to Aaron, the first high priest. So this guy is legit. I mean, this guy comes from the line of Aaron. He is from that line. And as important as verse number one is to give us a time frame, verse number six gives us a balanced picture of history. Um, We'll deal with Ezra as a teacher in a bit. But I want to point out the balance between three realities in verse number six. The king had granted him everything, secondly, that he asked for, For the hand of the Lord his God was upon him. It is Artaxerxes as king who grants, who provides, but it is Ezra who asks, and it is the hand of the Lord that is upon him. I think from the human viewpoint, we tend to see the king as the one who has the power to give and to grant, and he does. But this is in response to Ezra's asking. I think that we have a tendency to fall into one of two opposite temptations. The one is to do as though everything depends on us. And the other is to do nothing as though everything depends upon God. And what we find in this verse is that the hand of the Lord was on Ezra. And the king gave him what he asked, but he asked for it. He didn't stay home and pray and say, Lord, may the king give us certain things. Uh, He asked the king for these things. And as we will see in response to this, the letter that the king writes, uh, Ezra was very, very specific in his request. It was not a general, yeah, we'd like to go home and, and, and worship our God the way that we used to. He is very, very specific in his request. Ezra does not simply wait doesn't simply sit he actually acts and he asks the king not only is Ezra specific in his asking he is quite courageous now again there's three things here we might think that we could balance the two between Ezra asking and the king giving but there is that dimension of God actually who is involved in human history. Uh, there is human activity. There is divine activity. And both are necessary components of human history. I think as Americans, we don't like the divine component until we get into trouble. And then we pray to God and like we have certain requests that we want God to fulfill. But the reality is that God is involved in human history. As God's people we face these opposing or temptations to imagine that it all depends upon us or to fail to act and putting it all on God. Well, God didn't do it, you know, I prayed and nothing happened. And then the temptation that also comes into play is to imagine that we know how God is supposed to act. That we know how he will answer our prayers. I think when we pray, it is okay to say, Lord, this is what we're asking for, and if possible, do it in this way. But we should not imagine that somehow we are all knowing, and we know how God is going to act. We are to do what we are to do, and leave divine activity to the Lord. Because the Lord may in fact work it out in rather miraculous ways. it is really easy to fall into this and to take it all upon ourselves. But then when we get stuck, to put it all upon God. Instead of step by step realizing that we must do our part and that God is involved in the process as well. There's so many things in the Bible that I wonder about. And one is the story of Esau and Jacob where God had been very specific that the older would serve the younger. We know how it turned out because of Rebekah and Jacob's deception. But what if they hadn't deceived Isaac? What if, in fact, Esau had gone out and brought in venison and gone into his father to be blessed? God had said that the older would serve the younger. How would it have happened? We'll never know because Jacob and Rebekah screwed it up by getting involved with deception. We should not imagine that we know how things are going to, how God will do things. I think we are to look to Him. We are to recognize He is always at work in our lives. But we should not somehow put Him in a box and say, this is the only way that God can act. Well, after this, we are given a brief summary of the journey, which in fact will be fleshed out in chapter 8. If you look at verses 7 through 10, uh, we are told about this. It's, It's a four month journey that they took. The three things that should be noted is the length of the journey. It's about 900 miles. That's why it took four months. That the gracious hand of God was upon him. I think we may take safety for granted when we travel. This is not the case with Ezra. Um, In chapter 8, verse 31, the hand of our God was on us and he protected us from enemies and bandits along the way. It's a 900-mile trip from Babylon to Jerusalem. And there are a lot of things that could go wrong. They probably needed water as well. You need to find water at certain places, but they made it safely because God was with them. And then thirdly, and this is perhaps the most important part of this section, is verse number 10. We are given Ezra's character. The ESV has for verse 10, For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. He had devoted himself, the NIV tells us, to study the law, to practice the law, and to teach the law. As a descendant of Aaron, the first high priest, he is also a Levite of the tribe of Levi, and the priest had the responsibility to teach Israel the law. Well, in order to teach it, you must study it, you must know it. But there's more than that, you must also put it into practice. I must confess it is far easier to teach something you know, to study and teach than it is to study put it into practice and then teach it but this is what we find in the character of Ezra a man well versed in the law of Moses uh, and then in verse number 11 we'll come to it in a minute a man learned in matters concerning the commands and decrees of the Lord of Israel he knew the law But he also practiced the law. And we are reminded of what James tells us. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Or in the case of Ezra, don't just study it. Do what it commands. By the way, James continues. But the man who looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues to do this. Not forgetting what he has heard but doing it. He will be blessed in what he does one more thing and Ezra does not simply become an expert in the law and a a practitioner if you wish of the law of doing what it says but he does this so that he might teach others. He's not content to be sort of an ivory tower scholar. Yeah, I know the law of Moses. He wants to tell others and to teach others. He's committed to this. Now we come to the letter that King Artaxerxes writes for Ezra and uh, At this point, it is in Aramaic again. The letter is written in Aramaic. We'll return to Hebrew a bit later. Um, One thing should be clear as I read this to you. It's rather extended. But that Ezra's request was quite specific. Because this is a pagan king. And how does he know this stuff? I think he only knows it because Ezra had asked very specifically. Beginning in verse 11. This is a copy of the letter King Artaxerxes had given to Ezra, the priest and teacher a man learned in matters concerning the commands and decrees of the Lord for Israel. Artaxerxes, king of kings. To Ezra the priest, a teacher of the law of the God of heaven. Greetings. Now I decree that any of the Israelites in my kingdom, including priests and Levites, who wish to go to Jerusalem with you, may go. You are sent by the king and his seven advisors to inquire about Judah and Jerusalem with regard to the law of your God which is in your hand. Moreover, you are to take with you the silver and gold that the king and his advisors have freely given to the God of Israel, whose dwelling is in Jerusalem. Together with all the silver and gold you may obtain from the province of Babylon, as well as the freewill offerings of the people and priests for the temple of their God in Jerusalem. With this money, be sure to buy bulls, rams, and male lambs, together with their grain offerings and drink offerings, and sacrifice them on the altar of the temple of your God in Jerusalem. You and your brother Jews may then do whatever seems best with the rest of the silver and gold in accordance with the will of your God. Deliver to the God of Jerusalem all the articles entrusted to you for worship in the temple of your God. And anything else needed for the temple of your God that you may have occasion to supply, you may provide from the royal treasury. Now I, King Artaxerxes, order all the treasures of Trans-Euphrates to provide with diligence Whatever Ezra, the priest, a teacher of the law, the God of heaven may ask of you, up to a hundred talents of silver, a hundred cores of wheat, a hundred baths of wine, a hundred baths of olive oil and salt without limit. Whatever the God of heaven has prescribed, let it be done with diligence for the temple of the God of heaven. Why should there be wrath against the realm of the king and his sons? You are also to know that you have no authority to impose taxes, tribute or duty, on any of the priests, Levites, singers, gatekeepers, temple servants, or other workers at the house of God. And you, Ezra, in accordance with the wisdom of your God, which you possess, appoint magistrates and judges to administer justice to all the people of trans-Euphrates, all who know the laws of your God. And you are to teach any who do not know them. Whoever does not obey the law of your God and the law of the king must surely be punished by death, banishment, confiscation of property, Or imprisonment. Just a couple of side notes. A talent is 75 pounds worth, so 100 talents of silver, 7,500 pounds of silver. A core was 220 liters, so 22,000 liters of wheat. Uh, A bath was 22 liters, so 2,200 liters of wine, and 2,200 liters of olive oil and salt without measure. The laws of this letter, I'm sorry, is quite specific as to the authority given to Ezra. He is to instruct people with regard to the law, and he is to enforce obedience to the law of the God of heaven. We read of the generosity of the king with regard to Ezra's return and his task. It's found in verses 15 and 16. We also see the importance placed on temple worship. With this money, be sure to buy bulls, rams, and male lambs together with their grain offerings and drink offerings and sacrifices, or sacrifice them on the altar of the temple of your God in Jerusalem. Very specific, and this information could have only come from Ezra. The financial resources of the treasury are made available. Ezra and the Levites are given the authority to spend as they see fit. And Ezra also has the additional authority to appoint judges and magistrates. Why does the king do this? Well, I think we could easily say, well, because God moved his heart to do that. And I have no doubt of that. But if you look at verse number 23, um, the end of it, he says, Why should there be wrath against the realm of the king and of his sons? The king is not a convert. He's not necessarily a believer in Jehovah, the God of Israel. Rather, it seems he's covering his bases. He wants to make sure nothing bad happens because he's neglected one of the many gods that are found in his realm. But the result is that Ezra and various people are going back to Jerusalem and he has the task of teaching people the law of God. The king may have had different motivation, but the result is what God wanted Ezra's response is found in verses 27 and 28. Praise be to the Lord, the God of our fathers, who has put it into the king's heart to bring honor to the house of the Lord in Jerusalem in this way. So this is God's doing. And who has extended his good favor to me before the king and his advisors and all the king's powerful officials. Because the hand of the Lord my God was on me. I took courage and gathered leading men from Israel to go up with me we find as we do at the beginning of the book in the first verse of the book of Ezra it is the Lord who puts it in the king's heart it is the Lord who moves him to do this and for the third time we hear that it is the hand of the Lord that is on Ezra but surprisingly at least to me is that while Ezra points to the hand of the Lord being on him he says this is the reason that he took courage now I think I'm surprised because I tend to think of courage as a quality uh, that marks somebody's life, that there's no doubt, there's no fear, they are courageous. I think the reality is that courage is acting in the face of doubt and fear. Uh, And because God was with Ezra, Ezra took courage and he asked the king for these things and the king, in fact, granted them Courage is not something that we should imagine we have apart from God. And courage is not a matter of knowing how things will turn out. That somehow Ezra takes courage because he knows it's all going to work out. He has no no knowledge of that. But the the hand of the Lord was on him. And he heads for Jerusalem with no guarantees. Now we come to chapter 8. And chapter 8 fleshes out what we saw in verses 7 to 10 of chapter 7. It begins with a list of those who went back with Ezra. I'm not going to read the names, but if you take nothing else away from this section, we should recognize that it is about real people. They had names. They had families. And in every case, except for one, the family of Joab, these people who are going with Ezra, their relatives had gone in the first place the first group that had gone back um, almost 70 years, 80 years earlier. So now the families, if you wish, are expanded. We don't have new people except for this one family. We have the relatives of those who had gone on before. Um, They gather at the canal that flows toward Ahava. We don't know exactly where this is, but we think it's near Babylon. And there they stay for three days organizing It's a four-month trip that they're going to take to go to Jerusalem. Levite, or Ezra finds out there are no Levites in the group. There are no priests. Well, how is he going to carry out the task that the king has given to him to go back and teach if there aren't any priests or Levites to do this? He's only one man. And so he sends out people to go out and recruit Levites to join them. And because, as he puts it, the gracious hand of our Lord was on us, thirty-eight Levites joined, and two hundred and twenty temple servants joined them. And now they are ready to go. But what does Ezra do? Look, if you would, in chapter eight, uh, beginning in verse number twenty-one. There, by the Hava. Uh, Canal, I proclaimed a fast so that we might humble ourselves before our God and ask him for a safe journey for us and our children and for all our possessions. I was ashamed to ask the king for soldiers and horsemen to protect us from enemies on the road because we had told the king the gracious hand of our God is on everyone who looks to him, but his great anger is against all who forsake him. So we fasted and petitioned our God about this and he answered our prayer. Before they leave, Ezra proclaims a fast to ask God, the Lord, for a safe journey, literally a straight road that they can get to their destination safely. One should not presume safety. One should not assume that there would be safety in the road. Ezra looks to the Lord for this. But what I would point out, I think, is applicable to us on a daily basis is that they humbled themselves before the Lord. There's no presumption that they will get there safely. No assumption that they are special. That Ezra is this great scholar. He's a priest descended from Aaron. Now he has these Levites and they have all the stuff. They have a letter from the king. They're ready to go. They're special. There is nothing like this that we are going to make it because we are special people. They also don't want to look to human resources as the basis for safety. Soldiers and horsemen they told the king we'll be okay that the Lord will watch over us and then it would seem kind of strange to say oh by the way can you give us uh, some security as we go along humility is the key in this passage and one I think that we should take to heart how many times how many things do we do every day with no thought upon our of our dependence upon God, we do things with the thought not consciously, I've got this covered I can do this perhaps if we were going to go on a long road trip 900 miles which we could cover in a day or two, um, we might pray before we take the journey that God in fact would give us safety. but if you're just going to the grocery store I can I can do that. I can do that. If we're going to go visit friends, uh, going to work, driving to work, does it ever occur to us that I am dependent upon God for safety in this journey? Uh, Ezra knew the law. He practiced the law. He wanted to teach other people the law. And I think rather than this leading to pride, it led to humility. And before they take one step, they're at ha- ha- Hava. Getting ready to go, they fast and they pray and they humble themselves before God. Humility is so important and something I think that we take for granted in so many areas of our lives. I've been reading recently of people uh, who have left the faith, and um, without being judgmental, um, I think the one thing that I see that is true in every case is there's no humility. There is a sense that I know the Bible, I've read the Bible, uh, I was taught the Bible since I was a little kid, and I know it. And there is no sense of humility that God, in fact, has given you the ability for your mind to work, and there are new things that God, in fact, may reveal to you. There's none of that. And here is an expert in the law, and he humbles himself before God. God answers his prayer, they arrive there safely. That's not always going to happen. Uh, years ago we had a family in our church and every morning uh, as the mom would drive uh, her daughter to to school before she turned on the key she they would pray. And one day that happened, turned on they prayed and turned on the car and then they they'd gone barely a block and were broadsided by someone coming off the freeway. And the daughter asked the mom, "Mom, <laughs> we prayed." Why did this happen? And her mom said, well, we are safe. We were not harmed. So God has watched over us. But there may, in fact, be times when someone is injured in an accident. The key to all of this, though, is humility, that we should not assume, I can do this. I, I know what I'm doing. Okay? I know how to get to work. I know how to get to my friend's house. Um, I know how this all works. I can do this. And no sense of humility that it is God's gracious hand being on us at all times. That apart from that, I think we'd be in serious trouble. But lacking humility, we don't see that. When we get in trouble, then we pull in Ezra. Then we might even fast and then we'll pray and say, please do something. But every day, everything that we do, there should be on some level this consciousness that it is God who sustains me God's gracious hand is on me and we should humble ourselves before God let's pray together our father by your grace we are here every Sunday and we sing hymns that we know we do things we're familiar with and then we go home and for the rest of the week, we do the things that we know how to do, and somehow we forget in all of it, that it is your gracious hand that sustains us. And not just for a day or a week, or a month or a year, but through our lives. By your grace may we look to you in humility and recognize that you sustain us because you love us. And if we were to be like Ezra and we knew the law, we'd be experts in the law. And we might even be people who practice the law. There's still a place for humility. We are to humble ourselves before you at all times. Forgive us when we do not. And by your Spirit, teach us humility and faith and trust. And as you have loved us, may we in turn love you. Thank you for bringing us together today to worship you. How gracious you are to do that. We pray for Zib and her baby for these next seven weeks as the time of delivery draws near, that you would watch over them. We ask for safety that you would keep us through the coming days. May we have a sense of your presence at all times. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.